Amen. Could just add my welcome this morning. Good to have you with us. And um, just going to, uh, coming to God's Word, we are in the book of Acts and chapter 14. You can welcome to turn there. Um, first slide up if you want, thank you, and uh, we'll get a start. So yeah, Father, just commit this into your hands, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So this week, once again, we are joining Paul and Barnabas, and they're moving around what is now modern-day Turkey, and at times as if they're, it feels as almost as if they're being pushed around by opposition, but of course the, the Holy Spirit is also at work in, in all of this. And now in Acts chapter 14 verses 8 to 20, they arrive in Lystra. And Lystra was a Roman um, province of Galatia. It's about 18 miles southwest of Iconium. And this was the first of, of three visits that Paul would make to this particular city. And what an eventful visit it was. So what would unfold is a unique series of events In fact, a whole variety of maybe multiple different reactions. And today, I want to do things a little bit differently. I want to tell you the story through the eyes of a citizen of Lystra. This guy probably existed, though we don't know his name. But for the purposes of today, we're going to call him Augustus. My name is Augustus. I, I, I can't believe what actually happened to me today. I was walking through the marketplace this morning when I came across a group of people who were listening to a man I, I'd never actually met before. It turns out he had just arrived in our town with his friend. He was a very ordinary looking sort of guy, a small man, slight, losing most of his hair, pretty much bald, with a slightly crooked nose. And there's nothing, nothing particularly special about this man, but what he was saying intrigued me. So I stopped to listen. He seemed to have this confidence about him, and yet he was relaxed, he, he was easy to listen to, but he spoke with such passion He was talking about a man called Jesus. And the words just flowed sort of out of his mouth, off his tongue. It was obvious that he had this conversation many times before. And he described how Jesus had done something incredible, how he healed the sick, how he had cast out demons, how he even raised people from death. And then he said something very strange. Jesus came to save. I wasn't really sure what he meant by that. But as he went on, he described how Jesus had been captured, how he'd been beaten, how he'd been sentenced to death, how he'd been executed. And, and then once they were sure that he was dead, 
they'd taken him down from a cross and they'd put him in a tomb. And I was left wondering, I was questioning, why had they done this? This man who had done, done nothing to deserve it. And as I listened, I could just feel this emotion beginning to rise within me. And then the story got really exciting because the speaker said, whose name I later discovered was called Paul, he he described how God raised Jesus from the dead and that many people had witnessed this. In fact, he was adamant that this really happened. People had seen with their own eyes that Jesus was alive again. And then he went on, because Jesus is alive, he said, he said, I could have my sins forgiven. In fact, everyone who believes can be set free from sin. I stood there stunned. And and even though I had many other things to do, I just couldn't walk away. Of course, I wasn't the only person watching that day. There were many others looking around. And, and, and there's one particular man. He's sitting on the ground. And he's been there the whole time. He, he just like me, has been listening, just taking in everything that has been going on, what this guy Paul has been saying. And I knew this guy pretty well. Well, when I say I knew him, I'd seen him around many times before. He always sat there in exactly the same spot. He was begging He's looking for food, but he just sat there. He'd been there for years. People said he was born that way. All I know was I'd never, ever seen him walk. A cripple from birth. (laughs) The next thing I hear is Paul's shouting at him. Now, not angrily. He's just shouting to get his attention. And he told him to get up because Jesus wanted to heal him. It sort of seemed inappropriate, almost funny. But very quickly, the smile on my face turned to shock. I couldn't believe it. He's up, he's walking around, he's he's even jumping around. I'll, I'll be honest. I'd heard rumors about this sort of thing happening in Jerusalem, but I didn't believe them. They had said that this man called Peter had had healed a man who had been crippled from birth. It sounded very similar to what I had just seen. I had just seen the impossible happen right before my eyes, and I was was struggling to believe it. How is this even possible? This was miraculous. And Paul was saying, it was because of faith. Because the man believed in Jesus. See, I didn't have faith like that. Not yet anyway. Do you? I just want to step out of the story for a moment because the key word in this whole story is, is faith. Right from the very beginning when Paul looks at this crippled man. It says in verse 9 that he realized that he had faith to be healed. And Christian faith is powerful, it is effective, because the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. 
He is the infinite one. He is the one who is all-powerful. He is the one who is absolutely reliable. When the missionary John Patton was translating the Bible in the South Sea, to a South Sea Island tribe, he discovered that he had no word for the word faith or trust. One day a native was, came running hard into the missionary's house. He flopped himself down on a large chair and he said, oh, it's, it's great to rest my entire weight on this chair. That's it, said Patton. I'll translate faith as resting one's whole weight on God. God can be trusted. This is the theme of our God can be trusted. But what is it about faith and healing that we're talking about in this story? See, I've got to confess something. I am not very good with sick people. I, I just don't cope very well with them. I, all that retching and complaining and then the vomit and the smell of that vomit. It, listen, if, if you want some sympathy, you go to Rachel. <laughs> Yet I know that Rachel is probably just a lot more Christ-like than me because... I know that Jesus never keeps his distance. I know that he is never aloof. He cares for individuals and Jesus still heals today. And healing is a priority for Jesus just as it was for Paul. And as you read through the gospels, you will discover that Jesus often seemed to regard sickness as the enemy. He was hostile to it. He hated it. There's, of course, those who will suggest that we should just accept sickness and pain and torment as if it's God's ordained tool to make us more like Christ. But the idea of this actually, of just accepting sickness, seems in stark contrast to what Jesus taught in the Gospels, in fact, in the way in which Jesus lived. Now, before you shoot me down, <laughs> I do know... I understand that it's complex and I know that God will and does use everything and anything for our ultimate good, ultimately for his glory. I know that God takes us through difficult situations. Of course he does. But he is not the author of evil or sickness or despair. It is the enemy, Satan, who wants to kill and to destroy. So let us make sure that we do not give him too much credit. Listen, in our theology of God, we must have a big God and a small Satan. Not the other way around. Listen, God is sovereign. God, he reigns. He is the one, as we've sang already today, he is the one who is exalted on high. He has ultimate authority, ultimate power. And it's so important that we have the right understanding of the power of God revealed to us perfectly in Jesus Christ. And our joy and our hope comes as a direct result of knowing God, the almighty God, the all-powerful God, the God who is holy, the God who is just. But knowing his joy, knowing his hope comes from being in his presence. And our essential prayer must be that the kingdom of God may come on earth as it is in heaven. This is God's desire over your life and over our church. So where do we start? Well, we start where Paul starts in this story. We start with Jesus. So Jesus enthusiastically congratulates those who had faith in him. You remember the story of the woman who secretly touched the end of his garment and was healed? When Jesus found her, he affirmed her by saying, your faith has made you well. 
And faith clearly plays a big part in the release of healing. But with this comes some theological challenges and difficulties. But the bottom line is that your faith will grow as you begin to see healings. Your expectation will increase as you see God transform lives, heal the sick, and set people free. We need to have faith in God's power rather than our own skills. It is God who heals. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. There are, of course, those who have God has gifted with, with um, spiritual gift of, of healing. But no matter who they are, it must never become, be about the person who prays. It is always about the God who heals. He is the one that we place our hope and our trust in. And listen, why God chooses to heal in some circumstances, why other people suffer, we do not fully understand. Not this side of eternity, but as we've already heard already, one day we will know his true blessing. One day we will know the gloriousness of what it is to be alive and well, rejoicing in his presence for his glory and for his honor. I grew up on a dairy farm, and over the summer months we would cut silage, and grass was cut down in the field, it was brought in on a trailer, it was tipped up into the yard, and very often my job was to buck rake the silage into the silage pit. It required a reasonable amount of driving skill. On the back of the tractor there were a row of prongs, you'd reverse into the fresh, freshly cut grass, you'd pick up as much as you possibly could, then you'd reverse back into the silage pit, now, my dad was very safety conscious. Not surprisingly, I'm pretty accident prone. And so he would give me endless instructions. I'll tell you what, at the age of 16, I knew everything. I was an expert in pretty much most things in life. And one of the things that he said to me, however, was don't go too far back on the grass, because at the back, the grass gets very soft and you'll end up getting stuck. Things were going very well until that one moment when I get a little bit too far back, the back tire began to sink a little bit, I began to try and drive forward, it spun, and I dug myself deeper and deeper and deeper, I was absolutely stuck. I thought, no problem, should have gone to dad, but I can sort this out myself. So, all I need to do is just dig the grass from under the back wheel of the tractor, and then drive forward. It seemed pretty simple. I grabbed the pitchfork and I began to dig, but the third lump of grass I missed and I put the fork straight into the back wheel of the tractor. And I remember standing there thinking over this dreadful dilemma, what do I do next? Do I leave the pitchfork in or do I pull it out? Either way around, I suspected my dad was not going to be pleased. I decided to pull it out. And as I stood there and I watched the air leave this huge tire, literally about my height, I was feeling as deflated as that tire was now beginning to look. If only I had gone to my dad as soon as I got stuck instead of thinking that I could do this myself. See, my skills let me down. Rather than trusting in my own ability, I should have gone to the one person who could have sorted out the problem without making things worse. And the same thing applies to your relationship with God. How often do you try and fix things yourself? How often are you slow in turning to God? Is he the one you'll turn to first of all? Or do you try every other option and then think, well, I'd better go to God? 
Listen, go to the one who can sort out any problem, who will end the cycle of despair, who, will, who is the great healer. Put your faith in him. Put your trust in Jesus, not in your own abilities. You need God. Every time you need God. And your experience or your wisdom in ministry will only get you so far. Having great organization skills or great administration will be useful, but it's not enough. Great worship leading and preaching, great blessing. We need all of that. But that is not where we put our trust. Your trust is in God. You need his presence. Listen, even if our strategies are perfect, if our theology is faultless, without the Holy Spirit, we are doomed to failure. God's involvement is the only thing that will ensure the breakthrough, and we need breakthrough in our lives. We need breakthrough in healing. We need breakthrough in circumstances and situations. It is only when the Holy Spirit comes and moves in our lives that we are transformed. Simply put your trust in Jesus. Put your trust in him. Let's go back to our story. marketplace was, was now in absolute turmoil. The crowd was growing. People were retelling the story of what happened. Some were actually exaggerating. Most of them were just really trying to make sense of it. And Paul's words had been so inspiring, so challenging. I, I, I just could not get them out of my head. I, I couldn't get Jesus out of my head. How do you explain that a man who's never walked before was now able to walk? Some of my friends had found me by now and, and we're, we're huddled together. We, we, we're discussing the options. We'd, we'd heard that some of the Jews in our city had been talking about Yahweh. Was Paul really right in saying that there was only one true God? But my friends like most of the city, believed in many different gods, many superstitions. So it wasn't long before the conclusion of the crowd was that these two men visiting our city were gods. It had to involve gods, they thought. But which ones? The general consensus was that Paul, the speaker, was Hermes, the messenger of the gods, a god who could easily move between the realm of gods to the realm of humans. Of course, Hermes was also the patron deity of our city, so it wasn't the worst suggestion, which meant that the man who was with him, Barnabas, had to be Zeus, the chief of the gods, the father of Hermes. And by the time I'd heard it a few times, I was, well, I was beginning to think maybe, maybe they're right. After all, such power could only come if gods had come down. 
So they deserved honor and sacrifices to be made. In fact, the priests were already beginning to make sacrifices. I could see the bulls of, at the city gates. I, I could, just, just ready for sacrifice. The rays of beautiful flowers, brightly colored, were being prepared. The city was just pulsing with energy, a real buzz of excitement among the people. Actually, the only people that weren't excited were Paul and Barnabas. In fact, they're not excited at all. They look shocked, horrified, sad. It became very obvious how devastated they were. They tore their clothes, a dramatic sign of how distressed they were. And they were shouting, please stop, stop. You've got to stop this. You've got to stop. But they weren't angry. There was love in their voices. Compassion. And a humility about them as they explained that, that they were just the same as us. In fact, they were saying there was no difference between us and them. And they were protesting that they certainly weren't gods. And they also spoke boldly with the same authority that they had from the very beginning, they even called our gods worthless. It was a brave, brave thing to do. They told us we needed to turn to the one true God, the creator God, the only God who is the living God, the giving God, and the forgiving God. And my, my head was beginning to spin. Could this be true? Is there really only one God? Was he the one who had sent rain for our crops? Was the food that I ate really all because of God's kindness and proof of how much he loved me? And I, I listened when Paul said that I didn't deserve God's love. That my nation deserved God's punishment, God's judgment. And even though I didn't want to hear that, in fact, none of us did, deep down, I knew it was probably true. I guess, like most of my friends, I wanted them to be God's. After all, if they were God's, they might bless us, maybe bring prosperity to us, bring us good luck. But Paul and Barnabas just kept talking about Jesus. They didn't want to honor themselves in any way. They were only concerned about Jesus. That was all that they would talk about. Their words, their actions were all about pointing people to Jesus. And when they spoke about him, they were joyful. They were enthusiastic, hopeful. He had captivated their life as if nothing else really mattered. And as I listened, I wanted what they had. I wanted to know this man. I wanted to know this God. I wanted to know Jesus. I wanted him. And as I listened, all that I can describe was this, this warmth growing within me. I felt hope. 
a strange joy like I'd never experienced before. And as I stood and listened, tears began to run down my face. I wasn't sure why, because I wasn't sad. I felt happy, even at peace, in the middle of all the din of the crowd, among all of this commotion, I could hear myself whisper, Jesus, I need you. Then a little louder, Jesus, I need you. And then I was almost shouting, Jesus, I need you, please forgive me. And people were looking at me and I didn't care. I looked around, I could see others were filled with emotion. Some were sobbing, others were laughing. Some were even on their knees. And by now the crowd was quieting down having slowly been convinced that they had not been visited by gods. Many were listening, thinking, pondering, but not for much longer. All of that was about to change. Things were about to get ugly, turn very, very ugly, and I didn't see it coming. I cannot believe how quickly a mood could change. One minute Paul was a god to be worshipped, the next minute he was a criminal to be killed, an enemy to be destroyed. And it wasn't, it wasn't the local people. They were outsiders, Jews from Antioch and Iconium. I heard later that Paul and Barnabas had just come from there, and just like in Lister, they'd been talking about Jesus, but the Jews really did not like them. And now they were in our city, and they wanted to have another go at Paul, and they were furious, they're, they're angry, and, and so now that they have found him, they, begin, they began to persuade the crowd to turn against him. They were asking him to stone him. And it just seemed somewhat ironic that the very people who wanted to worship Jesus now wanted him dead. I just watched with stunned amazement as they began to pick up stones. I don't know who threw the first one, but others quickly followed. One after the other, the situation was just escalating so quickly. Paul was being bombarded with stones. He was the main target. Barnabas was hit by a few, but the brunt of the aggression was aimed at Paul. I stood motionless, watching, not really believing. As he fell to the ground, his arms were around his head, bleeding. There was so much blood, but he was still talking about Jesus. And then, he wasn't moving. Lying unconscious, like a corpse. Was he dead? The stone throwers thought he was. And in, in an eerie silence, the crowd began to break up. People were just walking away. And I, I ran over. What else could I do? His message of hope had changed my life. 
I couldn't walk away from him. I couldn't walk away from Jesus. And I felt the love of God wash over me, his presence with me. I felt peace in the middle of this turmoil. I felt peace. Even as I say those words out loud right now, I, I don't know if I even believe them. This was a crisis situation. It was dangerous. I was in the minority. I had seen with my own eyes what happens to followers of Jesus. My head told me to walk away. It was madness to stay. Surely there's no hope here, not in this town, for those who follow Jesus. And yet now I was one of those people. And I couldn't walk away. Instead, I joined the others as they gathered round the blood-stained body of Paul. I watched as they gently put their hands on his head as they, they lifted him. I listened as they prayed to Jesus for healing. I even joined in, in my own way. I, I didn't really know what I was doing. I, I've never really prayed. I just remember saying, he can't be dead. Jesus, you need to do something. And as I watched, his arm began to just slowly move. They kept on praying. He opened his eyes. He eventually sat up. To this day, I don't know if he was dead or not. But I do know that this was the second miracle that I had witnessed in one day. I knew that there is no other God except for the one true God. I had wasted years worshipping idols, offering sacrifices to multiple gods that could do nothing for me. And all of the time, all of the time, unknown to me, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for someone to tell me about Jesus. In Jesus, I have found forgiveness. I have been made clean. And more than anything else, I felt love, and joy, and hope. It'd be so easy now at this point, at the end of the sermon, to stop, grab a tea and coffee and go. But one of our values here at our church is to encourage everyone to grow in their faith. And that's our value. And actually, if we don't allow time for this to happen, we're not living our values, are we? As Keith was talking there, I felt there was three things that we could pray for now. Three important things. Number one for people who might have heard of Jesus. You might have heard people talk about him. You might sit in church now and hear what Jesus says. But do you truly know Jesus? Do you truly believe in this Jesus that we are talking about? Let me tell you, I'm talking from experience. When you truly realise who Jesus is, it changes your life because of what he has done. 
I had the word lukewarm come when we were praying. And what I'd love us to do now is to pray and spend some time as a family praying for one another. And particularly the first point is for people who are just feeling lukewarm. They don't feel they have this joy in Jesus. Now let me be really honest. Just because you know Jesus doesn't mean that life is always easy. I can speak firsthand from that. It doesn't mean that suddenly your debt is going to go. It doesn't mean that suddenly everything is going to be tickety-boo. What it does mean is that he will be with you in those times. That he will walk with you. We're told that he delights in the lives of those who love him. So I'm just going to take a moment. I'd like us all to bow our heads. I'm just going to read some scripture to you that God put on my heart there. And it's from Matthew. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven.